0: Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 218 of The Cool Room. It's a coolish Melbourne night, last sort of night of summer, a nice reprieve from us after a few hot days. We hope everyone is safe out there in podcast land, and we hope that you're enjoying some great beers. We are going to be enjoying some great beers tonight because we're joined by the team from the Zythologist. There you go. I've already got my tongue tied. At least it's not been what's happened to me all week because I've been typing Zythologist, which is that my autocorrect has made it Mythologist, and I've had to go back and change it time and time again that i have been happy to do because i am so chuffed to have the team on tonight we've got some great guests we've got some great beers make sure you grab them from our online store uh, and if we are sold out we'll tell you how to get them from the zythologist store as well we've got three of the team joining us tonight we've got shivam we've got daniel and we've got doug who is well known to us from previous episodes we're going to do our traditional cool room introduction thing where i'm going to first of all ask shivam to introduce Daniel, Shavam, first of all,
1: welcome to the podcast. How are you tonight? Thanks, David. I am doing great. I'll uh, Yeah, I'll do the honours and I'll introduce, not myself, but uh, Daniel here. So as Please you can do. See, Daniel is our Mexican Jesus. He is the co-founder and director of the Zyatologist. Uh, Daniel has a PhD in carbon capture, which is uh, what he studied at Monash University, where we all met. At the brewery, uh, Daniel is pretty much in charge of all admin work, uh, accounts, it's multiple hats throughout the day, but everything that happens on the back end, that's not production or sales related, uh, that's mostly being done by Daniel. So yeah, really important aspect of the team and uh, yeah, on, on, on to him now. Oh, well, before we get on to him, we're going to do the last bit of our traditional start, which is
0: what's his favourite zythologist beer? Mm. Like, what was he drinking when you guys first met, do you reckon?
1: Uh, it's hard to pick his favorite beer because he drinks a lot, so I don't, I'm not sure which <laughs> one it is. <laughs> no, I'm just joking, but uh, if I had to take a wild guess and and pick one, I think uh, he's really into IPAs and big IPAs. So I would say probably, you know, Behemoth from from Kaiju, the Double Red, would be up there oh, well, if not his favorite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be my best guess. Well, I was enjoying
0: a Sierra Nevada torpedo before we got underway tonight, so that might be down in his wheelhouse as well. Daniel, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much, David.
0: Your job, my friend, is to introduce our old friend Doug Armstrong. Off you
2: go. Fantastic. Well, Doug has a fantastic job, which is pretty much keeping us afloat, which is, you know, selling the beer to the places that do want to have it and you know convince the ones that don't want it to actually sell it. So kudos go to Doug. Um He joined us relatively recently, but is already doing an amazing job with us. And yeah, he's already part of the family.
0: Awesome. And, and, you know, we've met Doug a few times before, but what do you reckon Doug's favourite zythologist beer is?
2: Look, that's going to be a hard one. So I'm just going to take a wild guess in the dark and say that, Doug, you enjoy Belgian beers. I'm going to read your face. Okay, great. And so then his... Favorite beer is um, the um, La Trappe, the quadruple by La Trappe. Very close. That? Very close. That's a good <laughs> guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back that's to the good. show, Doug. What was the right answer? If that was a close guess, I want to hear what the right answer was.
3: Uh, St. Bernardus Abbot 12 is Ooh, my go to.
0: That is a classic beer. You're a man of refined tastes, mate. Welcome back to the show.
3: How have you been? Yeah, thanks, mate. Uh, really good. Uh, glad to be on board with these guys and, um, yeah, things are going well really quickly, which is awesome.
0: That's awesome, mate. You uh, you made sure that you reached out to us and helped us get tonight organised, so let me say right at the top of the show, thank you for doing that. We're really looking forward to talking about some great views tonight. Your job, my friend, is to introduce
3: Shivam for us. Uh, yes, my good friend Shiv. Uh, Shiv is our head brewer, um, crazy scientist. Uh, he is a chemical engineer um, with a focus on the engineer part. He is uh, very much into structuring things and, and making them work well um, with a bit of a twist. Uh, as for Shiv's favorite beer, that's also going to be a tricky one. Mm-hmm. I like this. There's already a little bit of tension in the room. This is our style. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to throw him under the bus and say it's Corona, but uh, I think uh, I think you probably find Shiv uh, is quite into a, a nice sour. Um, There's
0: lots if, of uh, nodding going on there for people on the podcast. That's a good. That's a good sign. That's a good. I sign. think.
3: Uh, uh, why don't why don't we uh throw it out there with a uh a barrel-aged sour with uh maybe uh some berries in it. Well, uh, I reckon
0: that's a that's a nice little insight between those ver- that wide array of favorite beers between the three of you, of the wide array of styles we're gonna be talking about tonight. And I can't get wait to get into them. Before we do that, and Doug, I might Throw this question to you, given you're the one who has to go out and explain to the world what a zythologist is, but also a bit about what the ethos of the brewery is. We're going to dig into this, you know, as we as we go through exploring the beers tonight. But cool. when you're out giving people the two-sentence, 30-second sort of explanation as to what makes this brewery special, what do you say?
3: Um, it's it's a lot of it's about collaboration. So the the three founders, um, meeting at Monash and um, you know, really getting a taste for um, brewing there um, and getting together and then wanting to continue that after um, is where the pathologist came from. Um, And that collaborativeness is present in in our beers. So um, we're getting some, like you say, some weird and wacky stuff there, but um, there's always something with a purpose and something a bit different just to to make us stand out.
0: Awesome! I, I feel like we probably just need to do a little bit of an explanation for people who certainly our overseas listeners, maybe even some of the interstate ones, to to explain what a Monash is because uh, <laughs> uh, to John Monash one of those places that we've got about 20 things named after in Melbourne. We've got freeways, we've got universities, we've got roads and streets and parks and all sorts of things. Shiv, do you want to be the one to explain just that little bit about what Monash is and where you met and that sort of that backstory? Tell us a bit about that first time you met Daniel. uh, Give us that sort of
1: preview. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Monash, when we say Monash, we are referring to Monash University. It's uh, one of the biggest ones in in Melbourne, if not Australia. I think it's the Uh, biggest.
0: I think it's genuinely the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere. It might
1: just be the biggest, I think. But yeah, I have to fact check that. I'm not too sure. But yeah, so um, I think uh, with, with Monash University, uh, chemical engineering there is uh, one of the, the better schools in the university as well. So it's known for chemical engineering worldwide it's quite you know, reputable as well. So myself, Daniel uh, and Gina, we met at Monash University while studying uh, chemical engineering or um, you know, related uh, studies. So myself, I was doing bachelor's of chemical engineering Daniel was doing his uh, PhD in carbon capture, as as I previously mentioned. So that's, uh, you know, the base of that is chemical engineering, but it's a PhD degree, which is in higher studies. And with Gina, she was studying uh, uh, protein synthesis. So it was more biochemical uh, side of, uh, you know, the the science that's involved there. Um, The way we three met was through this student club called Monash Brew Lab. So that was an extracurricular uh, avenue uh, that was created for, engineering students originally to um, learn new skills that are not necessarily uh you know covered in curriculum uh, as part of the degrees and they can um, do something fun on the side as well so um myself then, and Gina, we were there since the inception pretty much of, of monash brew lab and uh, we were pretty much doing the same things there just research but brewing learning the science behind it uh, and that's sort of uh you know that's when I think all of us got bit by the bug and realize there's something here that you know is fascinating and interesting and yeah rest is kind of history
0: (laughs) well i can't wait to talk about that history but look i know what normally happens at the start is that we start digging into the history before we've spoken about the first beer and then Mm. there's none left in the glass by the time we actually come to talk about let's not make that mistake we're kicking off tonight with the hydron uh the hellenic lager uh who wants to sort of Talk us through what we should be experiencing in the glass. Imagine we're standing around tasting this together. Folks at home have got the beer in front of them. Talk us
1: through it, please. Uh Daniel, would you like to take this or do you want me to take it? I think we're both pretty over well it. Yeah. Uh, easy. Right. I'll pour some in my glass so I can have a bit of a refresher at the same time. That's good. And we've then
0: we're gonna be drinking the raspberry cream sour. And the hazy mm. pale after that just to give people a little
1: preview while you get your glass ready there my friend yeah no, that's it's uh with the hellnick lager this is meant to be a really easy drinking no fuss simple beer i think the target audience for this beer is not necessarily just a craft beer drinker but someone who you know your average punter who goes to a pub for for a pint they can enjoy that as well but it has enough points of differentiation uh, that it stands up from, from your usual fare that you find at pubs um, from the bigger guys. So with the style, Hellenic Lager, it's not as uh, you know well known or not as popular uh, mm. in this part of the world. That's because it comes from Greece. Um, the, uh, I guess in terms of technical uh, information about the beer, it's quite similar to a, a Czech Pilsner and in Helles Lager, so it's a beautiful blend of the two together. So you can expect your noble hops, um, you know, the classic floral sort of aroma, a bit of spice, a bit of uh, pepper uh, and citrus uh, as well. However, it's not too overpowering or too intense. Uh, it, it's a, quite a smooth um, bouquet of, of aroma, if I if I may. Um, in, in terms of the malts as well, um, the, the malt base is quite simple. It's essentially two different kinds of malt. It's a pale uh, malt base, but we use melanoidin malt in it, which gives it some residual sugar uh, on the back end. So that provides a really good supporting character on the finish, uh, and it's not just simply dry and lacking in malt completely. So it's, it's a bit of a harmony between the malt and the, and the hops, uh, with hops still taking the center stage. Is this one that you've been making from
0: the get-go? I mean, I know you've only been around for a couple of years, but was this sort of one of the first, or
1: is this a relatively new one into the lineup? I think it's the most latest one, actually. So mm-hmm. we we've just uh, introduced this into the market. Uh, and the origin of this beer is also uh, because of the the site where we are trying to we're trying to open our own brewery and brew pub. So that's based in in the suburb of Oakley, and Oakley is a predominantly Greek area. So we wanted to sort of you know. Uh, Take into account the the local crowd and 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 and, you know our followers and supporters around us, and make something that they're familiar with and will also enjoy, as well as represent that and introduce it to the wider craft brewing community. And uh, yeah, show them something new. That's a really. I I was going to get on
0: to the uh, venue and things later on, but that's an excellent way to sort of preempt that bit Mm -hmm. of the story. Um, This is drinking beautifully. But look, this gets us our sort of first opportunity to start to nerd out a little bit here Mm. because we've got the explanation on the side of the can about hydrons. Why, guys, do you include this kind of nerdistry? And, you know, let's talk about why this name for this beer.
1: I'll let Dan take this one.
2: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, I feel like I need to probably (laughs) answer that one Um, um... (laughs) because... Yeah, I'm, I'm guilty of, of, of some of those uh, descriptions uh, behind some of the cans. So why we do this? Just because we, uh, well, mainly two things. One, we don't want to give any sort of um, prejudice or dictate what somebody's going to be tasting in the beer. So without necessarily telling too much what you're going to be experiencing, um, anybody can just drink it and find whatever they want in the beer that they're drinking. And second, which is kind of part of our ethos, to tell a little bit about a natural phenomenon or anything that is related to science and then draw some sort of link between that phenomenon and the beer.
0: So, yeah, and you know, those who in... don't have the can in front of them, why oh. this name and what's the phenomenon that you're you're describing?
2: Yeah, well, um I will not read the entire thing because it is a full paragraph and therefore I encourage everybody to get a can. For themselves and, and oh, play good
0: that's Doug's job, but good marketing. I like
2: that. <laughs> I took that one. Uh, that's it from Doug. <laughs> um, but basically we just um play with hydrant, which is you know an atom with um with a which is really just a single proton, which is the atom in its most bare um appearance or or status, which really goes in line with what we wanted to create with this beer, you know, a lager, as simple, as clean as possible, just to enjoy it but also it's part of the base of, you know, any other thing, which is, you know, protons in terms of creating different atoms. In this case, a lager, which comes in many different forms and flavors. In this case, this is the, the base beer. And actually playing with the periodic table, as you, um you know, some of those that have a can, you can see the the um, the, the design there. BH playing out with the number one um, atom or element of the periodic table. So there's really Stans and So very base beer.
0: Explain to me the three in the corner then, if you will.
2: Well, it's actually very simple. It's just the number of uh, founders. It's uh, Shiv, Gina and me. So, um, yeah, we thought of a lot about putting different numbers there, kind of kid creative, but, you know, so let's just keep it simple.
0: That's very good. I, I did want to ask that question because you can see the you can see the nerd and the slight OCD person in me, you know, starting to come out there that it's like, why do they all have the same number? This doesn't make sense. <laughs> now it makes perfect sense. I understand that entirely. Um as brewers, what are the challenges of making a lager? Because as you just said, it's a simple style, but that also kind of means that there's nowhere to hide. Do you want to take that? Yeah,
2: one? Do you want to take that Yeah, I can take
1: that one. Um. Yeah, that's a very, really, really good question, David. I think with lagers, you're spot on. It's uh, there's no room to hide. It's so simple. Uh, limited ingredients. So any little fault that might happen uh, during the brewing process or in ingredient selection will come through quite easily. So in terms of the challenges that um, I think a brewer faces when making a lager is uh, just. Process control, really. So it's about controlling every little aspect of the process, starting from what grains you're choosing, all the way down to when the beer is packaged and how it's being uh, treated or handled. So even little things like those could contribute significantly to, you know, to, to the beer in a in a negative way. Um, with lagers, I think there's also um, with 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 other beers usually a lot of things have to go wrong, and there's more of a compound effect that leads to a negative fault in the beer. Or with lagers, it could be just one little tiny thing, and that's enough to, to ruin everything else. Um, so, See, I'm on the look. I'm on the lookout for
0: scientific puns tonight. Can I say is compound effect uh, a, a scientific pun, or is that a <laughs> yeah, just a just a random turn of phrase?
1: I, I think we could tie it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah, um, but just to get specific as well, in in um, in terms of the brewing process, I think fermentation control and uh, Dissolved oxygen control are the two major, major factors that you really have to uh, have full, uh, you know, uh, monitoring over in order to maintain a high quality lager in the end. So I guess that begs the
0: question, whereabouts are you doing your brewing at the moment? What kind Mm. of equipment are you on and how do you make sure that those two things you've just mentioned get done to the standards that you want them done to?
1: Yeah, no, so at the minute we are brewing at our good friends at Killer Sprocket Brewery. They're based in Bayswater. i um, not sure if the listeners are familiar with Sean, uh, the head brewer there. Absolutely. So, go back
0: and check out. I can't remember the episode number, but we've certainly had the team from Killer Sprocket on before. All sorts yeah. of good people out there. Yeah. So go yeah. back <clears and throat> I may have
1: been episode. on that uh, episode. I'm i think sure. you might have been, Doug. I think you might <laughs> well you have just been. just changed Doug. shirts today. <laughs> 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 no, so, yes, yeah, so the Killer's Sprocket Kit has been kind enough to offer us some space, and that's where we have been producing all our, all our beers. In terms of the kit, um, the kit's, you know, it's, it's a really good kit, as you would expect with any other brewery um, in, in the industry. But in terms of what we really wish to do, it's we still, I think, once we have our own brewery, we we'll be adding a fair few more things on top of that, which will give us better process control, better capabilities uh, to do exactly the things we want. So for now, we are able to do it, but in a limited uh, environment or a limited format. So with fermentation control, for example, it's simply about just being vigilant and going there every day and checking our gravities, checking dissolved oxygen in there, so on and so forth. Um, And with packaging as well, we try to uh, just optimize how the canning line runs and how much oxygen can be picked up and how we can minimize that. Um, And to support that, um, we are able to perform analytical tests on our beers as well. So that's a really good factor that, you know, it's, it helps us know where we are headed. It's not a shot in the dark. We know if something's going wrong, Um, you know, there's this quantifiable numbers that we have for that. So uh, those testing capabilities are there at uh, at Monash Uni or at Kangen Institute where I teach as well. So we can utilize both those places and uh, yeah, help us guide us in a more scientific manner when we're making our beers.
0: Can I ask, I mean, everything you've just said there sounds really technical. There's lots of people who are home brewers who love, you know, making some sort of basic ales and things like that to kick off with. Mm. How easy is it to make a high-quality lager at home? Because what you've just said there makes it sound like it's beyond the the average home
1: brewer. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I think uh, to make a, a commercial-quality lager at home is absolutely really challenging, but making a good-quality lager at home perhaps isn't as challenging uh, of course it is more challenging than the other styles like compared to ales or the stouts and, and you know even nipas to an extent or any hoppy beers uh the, the it comes back to the two things i was mentioning before it's all about fermentation control so if you can control your temperatures really well if you have capability to pressure ferment and minimize you know the sulfur that's getting produced during fermentation for example uh that will go a long way uh and when it when it comes to packaging as well uh, kegging is always a safer way uh, to minimize oxygen pickup. So you don't, you're not canning, I assume most homebrewers would not be canning at home. So, you know, that point of uh, potential error is already non existent there. So it is possible, but yeah, definitely challenging.
2: I think I just add to that very quickly. Probably one of the best lagers that I've had was actually a, a homebrewed lager. Um, not by us. It would be very good to have, you know, to be that. It was actually in a, a homebrewing competition by uh, bayside brewers yeah Mm. that was a fantastic lager Mm. and i think the main thing is with you can make an absolutely fantastic lager at home when it becomes quite tricky is replicability doing Mm. the exact same lager again it starts to become really challenging
0: that makes absolute sense to me doug i want to ask you as the bloke who's out on the road selling the beers we hear from different breweries and different brewers and different sales reps, for that matter, that the time of lager is now, and then we have people who go, no, we'd never do lager. You know, they stay on the shelves. Where do you think the
3: market is at with its lager relationship at the moment? Uh, <clears throat> I I pushed for this lager to happen when I started um, because the time for lager is now. Um, There's our anyone... first
0: T-shirt of the night, yep.
3: Yeah, anyone who says otherwise is kidding themselves. Um, it's so competitive out there. And if you can't get into that space, you're not going to succeed at the moment. It's just really tough.
0: And so when you're going out, I mean, I'm sure there's some craft brew stores who are totally on board for selling lagers. But when you're going to perhaps, you know, venues which are a bit more mainstream, how do you start the conversation about the lager? How do you convince people who,
3: who think it's more exotic and difficult than what it is? Um, it's it's not as hard as it used to be. the The walls have come down a lot, um, and knowledge has gone up. the The point of difference is where, um, like our lager being a Hellenic helps because a lot of the mainstream pubs haven't heard of that, so that actually makes my job easier as far as well. You know, you don't have a Helena Klager, you probably never had one of those. So that that makes it a lot easier.
0: That makes total sense. And also in terms of marketing, it just makes me think that we should whack an extra, you know, adjective into most beer names. Uh, and then at least your rep can always go in and go, oh, I see you've never had a xylophone uh, beer before. So <laughs> they're all the tricks of the trade, Doug. You're the man who uh, who uh, who understands all these things. In the time that this beer's been out there, what's the reception like? Are there places that have got it on tap or now that sort of are, are coming back? Where, where can people find this beer in the yeah, water? Yeah,
3: there's a pretty good geographical spread across Melbourne um, with, with bottle stores and, and hybrid stores as well. Um, but we've, we've had, um, yeah, we've had places around Fitzroy, obviously, and, and Carlton um, jump on board and um, we'll probably get um probably get uh, <laughs> a bit more of a spread out from there um, that was
0: that was the most delicate little door close that I've seen <laughs> in a long time in the, back, in the background
3: there um yeah so it's yeah it's one of those things like we've got it we've got um from out in Hurstbridge, we've had we've had it out there um Warren Dight. um yeah go east and you go west and it's, it's all over at the moment and i'm informed by some of the team
0: from wehi talk about where all of the uh the science people are on at the clyde as well in Carlton. so very much one of my haunts shout out to the team from the clyde yeah yeah good people there absolutely good people well, the next beer that we've got lined up, we're going to sort of change sciences and approaches a little bit here. We're going to be underway with the Rubidium. Um, I've been looking forward to this beer all day, I've got to say. I've been down at the bowls Club watching uh, one of the other teams perform. I did not have a beer down there today, which is, uh, which is very restrained because I wanted my taste buds to be absolutely on point for this beer. Um Daniel, perhaps we might ask you again to to lead the way on this one, or is Shiv the man given it to Sauer? Who's Who wants to take us on our little tasting tour? How it should yeah. look in the glass, how it should smell, and of course, how it tastes. I think oh. Daniel's
1: got this one.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm very partial for this beer, so I'm happy to to walk <laughs> you through this one. So, you know, colour is probably one of the most um, distinctive things about this beer, and we naturally do this with a purpose, completely natural. Which is why it's this sort of red, but still kind of orangey um, hue on it. Uh, naturally, it's any sour, um, not a huge hint, but it's still present when you when you pour it. Um, the aroma is, you know, quite fruity, but um, at the same time floral. So it has a bit of spice in it that doesn't necessarily tickle the back of the of, of your nose. It has this spice that actually comes from um, one of the key ingredients there, which we wanted to replicate a. Um, a drink that comes from India, which is called Ro Afsa. And mm. that is a, you know, mix of rose petals. If I say anything wrong, Shib, you're the Indian in the room, so you can feel free to, to <laughs> correct, fact check me here. Um, but rose um, and up to a bunch of different spices, which in India is used to, you know, take and refresh when it's quite warm outside. So what we did, we wanted to replicate that. Uh, plus the natural addition of raspberries in it to provide this more fruity and and natural um, approach to it. Um, this actually was our second elemental beer, which is, you know, the ones that we call the ones that have, you know, this typical uh, periodic table uh, brand on it. And we wanted to take a bit of a different style to that. First one being Citronium, our paleo. So with this one, we wanted to take a bit of a, risky approach to this and we we wanted to you know have flowers and fruits that were part of the um the genus or you know the, the thing that the taxonomy that is above uh family which is genus from the rubus and so that involves raspberries um rose naturally um bunch of other berries uh, uh Loganberry, blackberry you know quite a few others and then replicate this spicy but quite soft approach of um of the of the raw It has um lactose. So hope nobody drinking it right now is lactose intolerant. Um it does hit in the can though, so just watch out. And that really helps in smoothing out this um this beer and and, and sort of I don't know if I'm kind of jumping the gun there, David, on something that you asked, but sort of the scientific approach or thing that we wanted to create with this. Yep, yep go for it all right awesome i got your approval um it's um kind of play with the different sides of flavors um the appreciation of the flavors so it's both sweet and sour Naturally, it's a, it's a sour beer it has the sweetness of of the the fruit and uh, different elements um but it also has that floral um element to it and then the creamy although that's not necessarily the best uh attribute to a beer but still it's quite creamy as well but both uh crisp and dry at the end so it's a bit of a juxtaposition of of flavors and and sensorial experiences in one um in one single beer
0: it's absolutely delicious can i say a really delicate enjoyable beer a great beer uh i can imagine to have with food as well as to have by itself. Um. I'm I'm genuinely intrigued to learn a bit about the process that's behind making it. But I feel like the sort of the logical place to start is with the rose. And I guess when people think of roses, they think of the flowers. But is it the flowers or the rose hips, the fruit that's being added? Can you give us a bit of an insight into how you add the different fruits that go in and at what stage in the process, and why that stage in the process? I'll mm. let the head
2: brew Decide uh, so how much to disclose of, <laughs> so the, jump on. of the recipe. <laughs> nah,
1: there's no trade secret, so I'll tell you how it is. <laughs> so uh, with the with the rose itself, again, it's a really challenging ingredient to use simply because uh, it's not studied studied as much. So we don't have that much information on it. How it's going to behave in a in a brew house with hops and malts and you know other things, Ooh. even fruits to a certain degree. We pretty much know now how it's going to behave because we've used it so many times. But with something as uh, delicate as is, you know flowers or petals, um, which we used in this beer. Um, it is challenging. It took us, I think, three or four batches to find that balance between how much of that rose flavor to the raspberry flavor we want in there. I think rose is, a uh, uh, it divides the room, that flavor. I mean, Turkish delight is a great example, right? So mm. <laughs> people love it and people hate it. So we sort of wanted to find that sweet middle ground where it's not as offensive, but it is complementing the overall flavor profile in a really subtle way. Um, But, you know, not the main character of of the beer. So in terms of the process itself, the rose petals uh, that go into this, uh, we actually purchase a distillate. So it's a rose petal distillate that's uh, essentially essential oils from the petals. uh, And then they make a a sort of a syrup with it. So that goes into our kettle. So on the hot side, Uh, it goes towards the end of the boil, when we are ramping our temperature down from you know boiling temperatures to uh, f- fermentation temperatures, that's the time when we will add uh, the the, the rose, and that's for a reason. Since uh, after I think above ninety to ninety two degrees, certain volatile components in uh, rose uh, petals would become volatile and, and leave the solution, so it won't survive in the final product essentially. So. That temperature control and adding it the right time um, is quite crucial. Uh, we've seen the difference if it you know if it's added too hot uh, when the beer is too hot, it simply doesn't uh, survive in the final product. Uh, and same goes with raspberries. Raspberries are not as difficult to work with. Uh, you know we use fresh raspberries in this as so a fresh puree, um, which changes from one batch to another. That's the only challenge. <laughs> but mm-hmm. in terms of knowing the flavor, it will contribute and uh you know what stage to add it in that's pretty uh you know set in stone for us now it goes in pretty much after the boil as well along with the rose uh just different temperatures so raspberry goes in at 95 degrees while the rose goes in at 80 82 roughly so that's the difference and yeah that's how we make this beer do you do any analysis of raspberry the
0: raspberry before it goes in and i ask this because it's one of those classic fruits in my experience that Mm. I'll go to the supermarket and buy a punnet. One week, it'll be super sweet and they'll be super ripe. The next week, they'll be quite tart. Yep. A raspberry is... I'm going to go with a bad Shakespearean pun here of, you know, a raspberry by any other name, but they're not always the same thing that comes out of the punnet. I rarely get to, I rarely get to do
1: Shakespearean puns. So I'm quite happy with this. <laughs> no, well, we don't mind those, so keep them coming. But <laughs> I think uh, with, with, the, with any fruits, not just raspberries, um... A lot is dependent on the supplier. So the suppliers uh, can control the consistency of their product, or at least be aware of how it varies from one batch to another. Mm-hmm. So we don't really perform any real analysis in-house on fruits that we obtain from our suppliers, but we do rely on the analysis that the supplier would have performed on their batches of puree that they've supplied to us. So usually, you know, the fruit puree comes with a COA, which is a certificate of analysis, a document, and that gives you the specs on it. So, you know, what's, what the density is, how much sugar is in there, how much of the sugar is fermentable, how much is unfermentable, uh, the protein content, fibre content, so on and so, so forth. And then we use those numbers just to adapt that to our recipe for that specific batch and change the quantities that's going in. Can you give us a rough
0: idea of those quantities? Again, for people who are sort of trying to get their heads around what your brew day looks like. Are you talking about a two litre amount of uh, this, you know, and I'm not asking for the recipe either, but just that sort of rough idea of how much of this stuff you're having to deal with.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, our brew days are super colourful because there's fruit everywhere. (laughs) So it's an interesting place to be in. Uh, In terms of the quantities for this specific batch, for example, we ended up using... 200 kilos 210 kilos of raspberry puree in a 2000 liter batch so that's it's about uh 10 you know if you go by weight so it's uh it's a fair bit but it's not an exorbitant amount there there are beers out there that would be half fruit puree or half fruit juice pretty much So uh, you know it's, it's uh, we, we're not trying to uh do something like that that is just for the gimmick of it or just you know i think It balances where our focus is. So uh, that's the reason we use that desired amount. And uh, that amount changes, as I mentioned. So it could be 150 kilos in the next batch if the raspberry puree is just more sweeter and then it's got more fermentable sugars in it.
0: Doug, I sort of want to ask a similar question to you that we asked on that sort of last go-round, which is, again, what's the market like for this sort of style of beer? There are people out there who love and who only stock the kind of sours that you can feel peeling layers off your tongue kind of thing. Uh, there are others who barely would stock a sour at all
3: because they don't think there's a market for it. Yeah. Where, where, um, particularly in Melbourne, I reckon it's at the moment? The market has changed somewhat in the last couple of years on sours. Um, there was quite a time there that sours were wanted year-round and constantly, um, that has certainly backed off a, a little bit in the last six months or so. Um, however, I think now it's it's about finding something that's approachable, um, and you know having having, you know, two ends of the market. There's you really full on sours uh, with you know half a batch of fruit, um, and then there's ones that are maybe a bit tame and, and don't have enough. So finding that middle ground where it's approachable enough for for the average punter to get around it and um therefore it's sellable is is good. But I think sours are hitting more seasonal again as opposed to being a year round thing. I've got to say that that
0: sort of resonates with me and the people that I sell beer to I I really get that impression you know it's it's we're not delving into the only stout in winter kind of argument here but there's there's certainly a market for more sours I think in the summer we can see that coming through. Absolutely. I I feel like with my desire to talk Linnaeus and Linnaean taxonomy that I that I've actually missed the most sensible scientific type question that I could ask you which is especially for people who are new to craft beer can we talk about what is actually happening in the process to make a beer sour because there's a couple of different ways to do that which way have you guys gone and why did you choose that direction
1: oh yeah i'll take that one so there there are uh, like you said david there are multiple methods that a brewer could utilize to introduce some acidity or make a beer sour with this one uh, we ended up using uh, the simplest way, I should say, which is using a yeast that produces lactic acid as well, and that is Philly sour yeast from Lalamond uh, Brewing. So that the benefit of that yeast is that um, it was fit for the purpose. There's, I believe, there's you know different horses for different courses, and in this one we wanted more of a balanced approach and nothing too acidic or extremely sour, and that's where Philly sour yeast works really well. Um, it reduces the the process and the steps involved in the process uh, at, in the brewery. So, you know you save one or two days and you don't have to kettle sour it uh, in a separate tank and uh, then boil it again so quite practical from you know uh, from a uh, economy point of view as well so that's the main reason we ended up using philly sour and i think um, this beer could be made using a kettle sour method as well we've in fact done that for our first batch of this i believe um and that uh, came out pretty similar to this, but it just um, is is extra effort for not much reward. So this is where we ended up being.
0: Awesome. The the question that I really wanted to ask, and I might be misremembering this, I remember when we had the team from Gypsy Hill Brewery in uh, in London on, and they were talking about the way that yeasts themselves could not just convert the sugars, but convert some of the other flavor profiles and even the colours, uh, which I had never sort of contemplated before, how conscious do you need to be of what the yeast will eat effectively uh, in the process to all of those things that you want to have appearing at the end of the
1: year? yeah that's that's a really good question and might get a bit too technical so feel free to stop me if i'm oh no 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 we we hear out a bit oh that's that's good um yeah so there's there's a, a variety of yeast strains that are available to you know a modern day brewer and then they perform differently based on uh the the need and the use for it in the brewery uh with this specific example with the philly sour yeast uh we know that it prefers simpler sugars it prefers glucose and fructose. Um, and that's when it will produce more lactic acid instead of more alcohol or more ethanol. So hence, that's the reason we use a lot of fruit in it too, because the simple sugars, um, especially fructose is coming from fruits, uh, and that will promote the lactic acid production, um, during fermentation. Uh, so we can sort of play around with that. If we add less fructose, it might not go as sour. If we add more fructose, it could go even more acidic. Um, so that's, I guess, one of the things that you have to be mindful of when you're using different strains. Uh, the other interesting thing I think you mentioned, David, was with other flavor compounds being produced by yeast. So that's uh, very much true for a lot of strains. For example, a lot of Belgian beers, you know, Saisons, they they are highly reliant on the flavor metabolites that are produced by yeast itself. So uh, in that case as well, uh, you can alter the quantity of those flavor molecules that are being produced by yeast by checking changing the temperature uh, profile or for fermentation by changing the nutrients we are feeding our yeast to produce certain specific compounds that we need from it. Uh, and as well as pressure is another big one. So, you know, you know pressure fermentation uh, can either encourage or discourage certain flavor molecules from being produced during fermentation. Uh, and then lastly, with the color as well, uh, yeast could alter color. We haven't played too much with that, to be honest, but uh, I think it's mostly to do with, the flocculation capability of yeast so if a yeast is highly flocculent it will not alter the color too much but right, if, explain uh,
0: explain to explain to the people at home what that means and by the people <laughs> at home I really do mean me but you know let's <laughs> pretend let's pretend that we're doing it for other people
1: <laughs> so flocculation is the ability of yeast to set uh, to settle down at the bottom of a fermenter tank after it's completed its job so after it's completed fermentation it will uh Huddle up with other yeast cells and start to get heavy and settle down at the bottom of the tank and leave a crystal clear beer for you to drink. So um, if a yeast is not highly flocculent, it stays in suspension. It will stay in your beer and you would be able to taste as well if it's in large quantities. And since it's there in suspension, it will change the way light bounces off the beer and it will change the color uh, and clarity of your beer too.
0: Look, clearly I've been hanging out to talk Linnaeus. Who wants to give us the the brief overview? Naomi, I'm doing this for you. You can you can nod or shake your head here in the room as we go through a bit of Linnaeus. I'm genuinely a fan. Daniel, am I right in thinking you might be our Linnaeus, or maybe not? Who's our Linnaean man?
2: In in terms of who names? Yeah, names? well,
0: and, and just give us the thirty seconds on who Linnaeus <laughs> is and why we should all care.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, this one plays a little bit, uh, if anybody, you know, has a little bit of a insomnia and is just as our cans uh, handy, they might see a little bit of a pattern in the description of our beer. So we always start with you know, the, the the name of, of the natural phenomena. In this case, it's taxonomy, which is the science of classifying um, all living organisms and then we the second sentence is always a um the discoverer or the scientist or doesn't need to be the discoverer but just somebody involved in it because sometimes we um you know Einstein actually did many things so we just want to create a bit of diversity there and Linnaeus was the one who created the the modern system to classify plants and and, and animals and all it's sort of its ranks and levels so you know you have a species family genus and that's why the genus of rubus um gave its name to Burbidium, this beer, playing with the colors and the, the flavors behind it.
0: So this was there was a segue coming here, which is it's a good little bit of history. And now I want to learn about the history of all of you guys a little bit as well. So that was really what I was setting up slowly with that one. I've got to sort of learn a bit more about all of your journeys in craft beer and where it started. Daniel, let's let's sort of start with you. Do you remember the first craft beer you actually drank? where was it? What was it? And did you have any idea at the time that you'd sort of get excited about this and, and you know, go well? That was, a bit?
2: That, that, that's quite specific. I, I don't have uh, so much aeodetic memory, but, um, you know, one of the the great things, so just as a bit of background, it helps with, you know, probably a bit of uh, background of, of who we are. I'm Mexican and, um, you know, Mexico actually has pretty decent um, mainstream beer, just because of the the influence of German uh, brewers in in Mexico, and so quite a few of the beers that you will see in the supermarket will be pretty decent. Um, you know, Vienna lagers and and um, and overall lagers are, are pretty decent. So probably one of the first ones that I've had, which could be considered craft, is a um, a Bock beer that was it used to be only bre- be brewed in Christmas time. And it was called Noche Buena, which is, you know, it's a type of plant and um, flower in, in, well, it's not just in Mexico, in many places. And it was just the best. And, you know, it was it was quite festive because it was only brewed then and you would have it with the, your typical dishes. And so then the first time that would have had, it would have been, you know, in Christmas at a semi-acceptable age to be able to drink beer. <laughs> and um that's that's yeah.
0: you you've handled that very well if the law you know the law authorities are <laughs> listening in well played <laughs> exactly
2: well covering all grounds so yeah that's probably the first one um and yeah it's uh, it hits uh close to home
0: and did that sort of start your love affair with craft beer or what where did that sort of process start for you where did you start to get excited
2: about it to be honest i, I mean i've always liked beer and um I like weird beers in the sense of you know when I was growing up as well in Mexico there was this big thing of mixing different flavors in your beer and that's how they sold them in you know like liters and they would they would put gummy bears and all kinds of ridiculous things but they would play around with the flavors and not just that your normal beer so it always kind of sparked a little bit of my of the interest and then it just uh, was a bit in in standby mode until um doing the PhD and as Shiv was mentioning. Until there was an opportunity to yeah, create a student brewing team. Um, the moment that I heard that I was like, yep, I'm in. I love beer. Let's let's do this. And um yeah, and just working with Shiv and Gina and you know, lots of other people involved at the time at the in the in the brewing team. Um, kind of went more into th- sort of the 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 business and the enjoyment sense, which is weird because I didn't necessarily start as a home brewer. The first beer I ever made was at the lab there with the uh, brown master I mean that was if you can say somebody's lucky with having done the first beer like that it's
0: yeah I was gonna say <laughs> yeah yeah what yeah, was that beer what was what was your
1: beer out of all of those ones
2: God um Shiv feel free to help me here what, what was the first beer it that we was uh, I
1: remember what? it pretty clearly it was called the calibration ale it was just a pale oh, ale God, that we brewed, and it was just to calibrate our system and learn you know how it behaves with the recipe yeah. The, I can't remember if it was half drinkable, but we did make one. Oh so. no, I'm
2: gonna I'm gonna burst the fairy tale here. It was awful. It was, <laughs> there you go. Was, that was
1: That's why I don't remember it. <laughs> yeah,
2: but you're right. Calibration was the first one. So yeah, it was more around that angle. Um, and then I just kept loving it more and more in terms of uh, the making of it.
0: Awesome, Doug. I can't remember whether we asked the same question for you last time you we were on or not. But if we did, feel free to update your story. Where was
3: I, I, yeah, I I can't remember if we did or not. Um. I have always been interested in beer. um, And my dad was a home brewer and my grandfather was a home brewer. So that put me off brewing altogether. Um, (laughs) But I probably tried my first craft beer in New Zealand uh, about 30 years ago, um, which would would have been one of the max beers. Hang on, you wouldn't have been born back then. Hang on might be given a bit away. Um, but, yeah, we were fortunate in New Zealand that we weren't just a two brewery uh, place back then and um, Max, Max Brewing really started taking off uh, in the mid-90s and uh, it was readily available everywhere and they were playing around with flavours. So I jumped straight on that and then... Monteith's was not far after, and then all of a sudden the imports started coming in. So, yeah, over being been spoiled. You certainly have
0: been, mate. Is there, you know, big beers you've had along the way? We, we, we've heard about your sort of your love of the Belgians and so forth. Are there other, for people who are just sort of getting into some of those even old school uh, New Zealand beers, what sort of things excite you on that front? What should people be hunting out?
3: Oh, look, there's so many more um, New Zealand breweries becoming more available again after the the lull of COVID. Um, I think small gods are doing really good things at the moment. Um, We're about to see on the shelves Yeasty Boys making a return properly instead of uh, the watered down versions we've had over the last few years. Um, so we'll be getting proper New Zealand yeasty boys on the shelves, um, which I'm very excited for. Love me a gonna matter IPA, mm.
4: um,
3: but yeah, I think, I think, yeah, watch the space with that because uh, the brewers are wanting to get back again over here, so we'll be uh, we'll be seeing lots of stuff coming over.
0: Shev, same sort of question for you, mate. Do you remember the first sort of craft beers that you had? Where
1: did your sort of palette begin yeah i'm trying to go go back to memory lane i think for me the first craft beer i would have had fucking call it craft it was my own homebrew at that time (laughs) so (laughs) because for me i i got into craft beer not because i was really into beer at that time in fact i didn't drink that much beer it's not that i hated beer either but uh it was more about me just you know accidentally uh putting on a youtube video on homebrewing and just like all right this seems really interesting this is quite Uh, You know, uh, similar to what I'm learning in in my chemical engineering degree as well with, you know, heat exchanges, for example, or fluid dynamics and thermodynamics and stuff like that. that got me really fascinated into the process first, so I think I fell in love with the science and the process first, and then I was like, "All right, maybe the beer is good too." So <laughs> I, you know, got into home brewing, and I was brewing in I, my. I have room. visions of you, mate. I have mis- visions of you
0: brewing enormous amounts of beer, and then more or less just giving it away because it's the it's the finger flicking fun <laughs> of <laughs> Professor Frink that's exciting you about all of this. I did
1: do that a lot for my first. 10-15 badges but it was for the reason that it was not drinkable by me so, <laughs> so i would rather give it away but... <laughs> so yeah and I think the first style that I made at home which is my first proper old grain you know brew it was a, a Kolsch so a German Kolsch so that's the first uh, beer that really got me interested into the wide world and wide variety and styles that are there in, in the brewing world. You guys are embarking on such an exciting
0: journey. It's great to hear that Monash and others have sort of given you a sort of that leg up along the way. Where are you at in the process now of getting your own venue and own brewery? Who wants to sort of talk us through where things are up to there? I'll
1: let Daniel speak on it. I'll get too emotional, so he can speak.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I I was actually thinking you might do that one. Um, And
0: and if this involves local government planning regulations, I'm even happier. That's even the few things (laughs) excite me more than Linnaean taxonomy, but certainly local government regulations do.
2: Well, um, I think that's one difference between you and Shiv, probably David. Um, (laughs) But um, you know, the short story is. you know, we've had amazing traction we've luckily had quite a few people support um us and you know be quite friendly and and um and liking our beers so we decided to take a the big step forward uh get our own place our own brewery in fact even have a a, a tap room at the site so people can enjoy it as she was saying it's um it's in oakley so we really want to have bit of a local presence there there's not many breweries in the area in fact there's not necessarily one in, in, in Oakland so that was really um well is really the 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 purpose of of what we're uh we're doing things are a little bit of in a stalemate at the moment um we've got everything ready to go and fire but we're finding a bit of um uh roadblocks with um permits and Local government
0: local plan laws well, is that what
2: we're yep, yes, local government. So that's uh throwing a bit of a spanner on the works and it's uh delaying a little bit of what we want to do, but we're we're pretty stubborn, which is you know a good thing when it comes to business. And we, yeah, we're not gonna go out without really trying our 100, percent so that will still happen. It's just going to take a little bit longer than expected.
0: Can it might seem like an obvious question to some listeners because obviously. You guys want to make money and run a successful commercial business, I'm sure. But are there other reasons why you want the actual live venue and tap room? What what's the attractiveness of that to you?
2: Well, I can say a few things, and then show you can complement. I, I think the main thing is create this sense of of a hub or a um, you know a, 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 a melting pot of, of of bringing people together and enjoying a beers. Because so far, you know, being gypsy brewers, it you start to be quite detached from those that are drinking and, and enjoying your beers i mean naturally we've done events where well, we see firsthand how people are enjoying it it tells what they think the good and the bad and it's it's great but we also want to be able to have that first all the time and create a space where you know everybody can come in drink our latest most ridiculous experiment and not necessarily be tied to you know huge batches that are meant to be fully commercial so i think for mine that's you know one one very important thing Shaver Doug, i don't know if you have any comments
1: i think yeah i mean you you included most of the points there Dan. but i think the one point i would like to add is strictly speaking from a business point of view as well i think that's where the industry is heading to have your own venue where you can welcome people and give them more of an experience rather than a product so that you know, having our own tap room there with the production happening on site as well, uh, it it really allows us to showcase the full capability, the full behind the scenes, you know, zeitologist experience to uh, our drinkers and our, and our you know our customers. So uh, yeah, I think it's it's going to be quite common now going um, forward as well. You'll see a lot of breweries they're already trying to open tap rooms if they don't have one, and uh, the ones that do are the ones that are sticking around too. So. Yeah, I think that's uh, it's a sensible thing to do uh, in the coming years. And Doug, I know you, you know, you're in front of the bosses a bit here, but you know, is that your advice
3: to people who yeah, are aspiring? One hundred percent. It's um, I've, I've worked in breweries which have had them and not had them, and the the ones that are more successful have good tap rooms. Um, and it works on different levels. You get um, obviously your punters coming and uh, you know, on the weekends and having a good time, but it's also a place where you can bring clients and um, show your wares off to them in a different way and bring them for collabs, labs. And, you know, it d- does give that extra level of um, satisfaction when you've got got those things at your disposal.
0: And what do you reckon makes for a good tap house, Doug? You've seen a, a few in your time. Um,
3: look, I mean, there's, there's no right or wrong answer to that because... I've been in tin sheds that have been good tap rooms. Yeah. Um, but I've also, you know, you've, you've got Fox Friday, which is
0: amazing. So um, I'm told I'm going to be the last man in Melbourne to go there. I've, this is now sort
3: of a personal yeah. sort of matter of honour that I've not been but, invited, so I'm going to be the last one. But um, ultimately, it's it comes down to the people that work there as well. If you don't have good people, you're not going to succeed.
0: I think that's an excellent little point just to press pause on this bit of the recording. But, Doug, I could not agree more. Uh, All sorts of venues thrive on the people who are actually there to interact with the customers and take them on the journey. Guys, you're taking us on a fantastic journey. We're going to press pause and then we're going to be back to have the hazy pale. Well, we're back here. We have had our little break here in the Zoom room, as you would expect It has been the opportunity for everyone in the room to ask all of their sensible, nerdy questions offline, but there's going to be a chance for audience participation in a few minutes' time. But, look, we really need to make sure that we taste this beer and do it properly, and we've got a couple of our traditional cool room questions that we want to get around. We've got the Tropicon in front of us. Uh, Who wants to lead the way with this one in talking us through what we should be experiencing in our glass?
2: so that james put his hand up he he wanted to yes to
0: james doesn't mind time on radio but daniel we don't need to encourage that kind of behavior
2: yeah um, um so
1: do you want to take this one with the flavor profile and like can run us through the brewing process and how it's yeah
3: <clears throat> look so we've we've got a, a nice 4.3 uh hazy pale uh with stone fruits and tropical fruits um getting the flavours from, from the, uh, from the hops. Um, and yeah, nice thick body, um, for, especially for such a low ABV hazy. Um, it's, uh, it definitely punches above its weight as far as body and flavour goes. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about what it is
0: that cause you, cause you're right. This is a low ABV version for this, but the mouthfeel is amazing. Why is that? And t- talk us through a little bit about how that process
1: is undertaken.
3: Well, that's definitely a shiver question.
1: <laughs> I'll jump on. Um, yeah, I think uh, with this beer, the, I think the idea for this beer actually came around many years ago. This was when uh, hazies were just a big thing. Nipahs were everywhere. Uh, this is sometime during lockdowns, I believe. If I'm not wrong, Daniel. So at that time, Daniel and I were homebrewing um, quite a bit and uh, we sort of had this idea that Nipahs are great, but they're all really high in alcohol. So we should have a beer that's lower in alcohol, but doesn't compromise on that body that you usually get from those soft pillowy nipahs. And it doesn't compromise on the, the hot punch as well. So getting that much hot flavor from a lower alcohol uh, you know, presence is quite challenging in itself because you start to get more tannic or more vegetal flavors when the alcohol is absent. Um, so with this one, I think uh, we sort of wanted to make a smaller version of a nipa rather than just a hazy pale there's a slight difference hazy pale ales are sort of dry and they get fuzzy but this one is um you know still pillowy soft uh, and just less amount of hops in it uh, less amount of alcohol sorry in it so yeah
2: and um if i could add to that uh you know one of the, the things that you know we enjoy the most is that you know there's three different kinds of oats uh, that we're using there and that really bring up the the body in it so makes the lack of alcohol not be too evident. And I I personally don't necessarily like the the you know when when hazy beers have that what I what I sometimes call like this yeasty chalk flavor or sensation to it. And this one doesn't, which um you know it's obviously um applause on, on my end. And it also it's a bit softer kind of like that what she was saying about this pillowy um types of nippers which really just comes out of the water chemistry and, uh, making sure that it's quite balanced and, and, and soft to that. Um, and one of the, and you're all having it. So kind of like, uh, one thing that I've discovered through this is that it actually has a quite nice retronasal, um, smell or aroma to it. So just take a big gulp past it, and then you excel through your nose. And you really get that extra fruity, hoppy dank, but not overly dank, not overly oily, um, which is quite quite refreshing. Which means you can either have a few sips and enjoy every little one, or if you're not really thinking about it, you just take a big gulp and you still get the, you know, the gist of it.
0: Which are the hops that we're using here? What's and what what are they all adding to the party?
1: The, the hops we've used are actually quite common, quite simple. It's the age-old combination of Citra, Amarillo, and Galaxy. It's more about, I think, the the ratio of those three hops and the stage of the process that we added into. So those, you know, all those three hops have their unique uh, essential oil contribution that they can make to the beer. And again, making sure that we let those compounds survive till the end of the process is where I think the attention to detail comes in. So um, yeah, it's uh, mostly Citra and Amarillo and Galaxy is just playing a supporting role here. So you'll still get that passion fruit, typical Galaxy note in there, but still a lot of citrus and orange peel, uh, sort of marmalade note that you get from Amarillo is the the forefront of it. And we've got some fruit on the front of the can there. Is that
0: just a marketing thing or is there a little bit of that actually being Uh, added in along the way?
1: uh, That's just from the hops. So you do get that sort of pineapple, I, I described as canned pineapple rather than fresh pineapple. A slight difference, but that's the flavor note uh, you usually get from uh, the combination of the three hops uh, when you know used in that specific ratio. In um, same with the yeah, passion fruit and grapefruit too.
0: And uh, one of the questions that we sort of had written down beforehand was, you know, what makes this as a pale ale? But is it really just what you're attempting there with the lower alcohol, or were there other things that you were trying to achieve? How do you try to put your own stamp on mm. some of these styles, which are well known to people?
4: Mm.
1: I think yeah, in this particular example, we were not trying to showcase too much of a you know scientific discovery that we made, made as such in, in brewing, but it's more about using our, um, our scientific knowledge there and the knowledge of ingredients in the process itself to create something that could otherwise be challenging. So having that in a lower ABB format, while still keeping it full body, still having that soft pillowy mouth feel, and not compromising on the hot flavor—that's uh, where I think we've sort of gone a bit deeper um, in terms of recipe development and doing some background research, and you know, working the numbers up. So yeah.
0: And let's just imagine that I'm fifty years old, and that maybe my eyesight isn't what it once was, and that I can't read the text on the side of the can here. When we're talking about our little bits of scientific reference, what is the tropicon about? Is this about the exploration of the tropic of cancer or something like that, or what's what are we going with?
1: I think that's Daniel's question.
0: So I genuinely Um, haven't looked at this. I'm having I've I've got three or four different ideas in my head, but
2: yeah, well, you were spot on, and um, you know, it's all about the the tropics and the fact that there are you know parallels, um, these invisible lines that you know divide the earth. Um for this one we didn't necessarily have um an inventor because I guess there's not really one single person that's attributed on, that, which is what we just um make reference to the Greeks and how they use the tropics of cancer indeed and Capricorn to uh name these places where there's more direct sunlight, this um you know they're generally hotter and wetter. And so then that's a sort of link or segue to the tropical um hops and fruits that go into this beer
0: i see i like that although i was i was quite prepared to go with you know the the british you know you know adventures and voyages to come and measure the transit of venus at the tropics and discovering for white people the lands where all of these hops might have been derived from so that's where that's where i would have been going with that one but just as well i'm not in charge of the marketing (laughs) well david
2: There there was one person that even on Untapped um, made a joke that you know these guys um, eat a dictionary or a history book every time that they they create a description of the beer. So if we went that way, we would be the bit of a more laugh. (laughs)
0: Guys, (laughs) the the way you present those cans is genuinely beautiful. I love, as anyone who listens into the podcast knows, I love to see cans where you can see the the brand presentation and you understand which brewery the beer comes from but each one of them looking distinctive and just fantastic in and of themselves who does the marketing who does the can design how does all of that stuff work we need to we need
3: to acknowledge some great work. yeah it's all Shiv Shiv uh, is our designer as well so he uh, yeah hats off to him he does a great job with this artwork
0: Is this correct you where do you do you know where do you get all the designs from
1: is it just Uh, sometimes i dream about them but sometimes it just requires a lot of uh just critical thinking and looking at you know empty walls and coming up with ideas but (laughs) i think uh the original idea for that periodic table look um also came about many years ago i think it was before we started the brewery itself it was um uh just me looking at a coffee roaster, I believe, who was using similar sort of periodic table uh, branding, but, you know, overseas and just for coffee as well. So that made me think that we could do really fun stuff with that sort of concept um, if we use that for craft beer. And since our branding is all about science, it just was, you know, it's meant to be. So um, the other main thing I would say that I really sort of pay attention to, and I think we were briefly touching on this before, is that juxtaposition of that, chemical periodic table elements, but then also elements of nature that you see on the can. It gives you a hint of what you might be tasting when you uh, pour the the beer in your glass. And that helps us um, not look too clinical or artificial or, you know, using preservatives, for example. So it's a fine balance that we try to maintain that, you know, it is inspired from science, but it's not artificial or clinical or lab-like. So, yeah.
0: With those botanical style drawings of the hops and other ingredients, are they things you're doing yourself, or things you're repurposing from elsewhere?
1: Uh, it's repurposed. Uh, you know, so it's it's not me scribbling those. That's that's pretty hard to do. I sort of uh, just find them from different sources and get the licenses and whatnot, and put them together in a nice looking, you know, uh, yeah, uh, collection. I think so, and that that does it.
0: They genuinely look amazing, mate. So congratulations! They look fantastic. Um, in terms it. of things that look fantastic. Mr Warren Wu you have either been in the room for the last hour and a half and very silent or I have timed throwing to you perfectly for you to ask our two regular questions Mr Wu how are you welcome to the uh, welcome to the show
5: Thank you, David. Yes. Uh, I haven't been this tardy in a long, long time. it's it's quite weird. No, it uh, feels it feels like I'm returned to traditional values, perhaps. Yeah, I think so. And it's always the why it's always the breweries which I really, really want to uh, sit in on too, which which is her- terrible. but, yeah, I'm glad I got to the two best questions. I got here for the two best questions. that's uh that's. Well, um, good. um,
4: yes. Well, uh, so these
0: I'd... guys are in the process of setting up their own brewery. Yeah. And so I thought perhaps we could ask, rather than this isn't sort of a an mm. esoteric question, as it sometimes is. We need to find out what bits of equipment they really want to have in their
5: brewery. Yeah. Yeah. What What is the and that's the I, I love this question. So guys, what's the piece of kit that you I like not the the most important, but I think the top of the wish list. The top of the wish list, I reckon, is the one. Um, a lot of people have said cash flow recently. You guys will discover that pretty quickly. <laughs> otherwise, yeah.
1: Right, I, can, I can take that question if uh, Doug and Daniel, you, you, unless you want to go?
2: I have one in mind, but you go, Shiv.
1: Uh, easy. I mean, yes, I think cash flow, obviously, in today's market, that would be the first thing for us too, obviously, like any other brewery out there. Uh, you know, that's what... Helps us get the other fun things that we want. In talking of the other fun things, uh, we have some equipment that we have already secured. So we've got a you know brewing kit and a uh, couple of tanks, but that's just the start. We want to add um, some sort of filtration capability on top, so a centrifuge. I love centrifuges, so <laughs> that'll be a great one to have in the brewery, so we can make some high quality lagers and crystal clear beers. Um, and the other thing I really, really want is a proper yeast propagation setup uh, at the brewery, so we can experiment with our own strains of yeast at certain, at, you know, a certain point in the future, and have some unique beers uh, that only we could potentially make. So yeah, that's,
4: that's the amazing. wish list for me. Yeah, I
5: yeah. love that. Um, what does that include? So we we it's it's fairly rare that breweries will talk about a yeast program but what does that encompass in terms of of what i suppose a lab like what what would be in the lab once
1: there'll be obviously a lot of analytical testing tools so you know you need your hemocytometers microscopes cell counters so on and so forth but the i think the main showpiece would be the the propagation tank itself so yeast propagation tanks uh, are usually uh, quite expensive for the fact that it has to be quite sterile and have to be kept sterile all the time uh, they have usually agitators built into it so you can move around the yeast slurry in the tank so a little bit more high tech than a standard fermenter for example <laughs> um, and then also having capability to uh, have our own yeast bank so we can store the yeast on site at mm-hmm. you know temperatures that go as low as minus you know 200 degrees for example so that's, that all that sort of uh, tech is quite uh, hard to get and also expensive. So hopefully one day we can justify that and have them agree. Uh,
5: I reckon that's probably the answer to the question. But my one of the things I was thinking of, what's the nerdiest bit of kit that you think you'd want? <laughs> and I reckon that's all. I think that's a pretty good answer. Well, (laughs) unless there's something else you can think of. I was going to say, what
0: about Daniel or even Doug? You know, if you're nerding out, what kind of things do you want to have in there?
2: Well, I think nerding out is part of our ethos, so that's that's the thing. Uh, In the lab, I was actually going to say a a gas chromatograph. Um, (laughs) That's kind of like the the absolute level of um, pure analysis, and that's definitely the dream piece because it's so bloody big and expensive. The rest of the stuff we'll get.
0: But imagine I'm a philosophy teacher, not a chemical engineer. What is a, what, you know, what is a gas chromatograph?
2: Well, it, it basically, um, it basically just allows you to see the different components in, in a sample. So, um, you know, you just kind of put the the solution, you need to dig it, So it's a bit of a, bit of a thing, um, uh, and then it puts it into a column. And then all of the the components are separated within within the column, so you can measure what kind of compounds. There's your pun, David. What kind of compounds are in there, and you can start to see you know things that you normally wouldn't. As with you know, like like a spectrophotometer or just you know normal um perception, just drink.
0: Excellent. And, and, Doug, what about you, you know, if you're part of the show? What, what's the what's the thing that you'd
3: like to see? in? Well, probably more on the drinking side of things. So I'd, I'd actually quite like on the bar for there to be a Randall. Um, I think it means we'd be able to play around with the ingredients and flavours a bit more um, without having to necessarily do a pilot batch or anything like that. We could just add ingredients to a current beer and see what they taste like and have a bit of fun.
0: Explain yeah. a bit more about yeah about, about how that works.
3: Yeah, so a Randall is a, a a small holding tank, effectively that um, you put ingredients into, and then you pull the beer through it. So it attaches to your tap system.
1: Yeah, it's it's more of a more of an infusion method, so you can infuse the beer while it's on the way from your tank or wherever in the brewery to the tap on the way it gets infused with some fresh ingredients. It could be hops, it could be herbs, fruits, you know, with the woolsey Oyster.
5: I'm really surprised no one said that in the past. Like especially the the breweries which have had tap room who have had tap rooms. Yeah, I'm kinda of surprised that no one else has said that. So that's a great answer. Yeah, um, nah. Let's smash out the other one. Okay. Um this will be interesting I think. So the traditional cool room question is: What is the weirdest, most explosive, radioactive, <laughs> dangerous thing you've seen in a cool room? Um, and normally we're quite broad with the term cool room, so it's 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 any brewing or hospitality or or, or beer,
0: or venue. tertiary education. Yeah,
5: or tertiary education. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, and I'm assuming a whole bunch of. Uh, a whole bunch of university-based individuals will have seen a few things in their time.
1: then do you want to go with this first? I'll jump one second.
2: Uh, I'm trying to think of a spicier one, but the, the, the <laughs> first one that came to mind was just going to the cool room after a big time of just not being there because of COVID. And then we came back to the most horrid um fungus in all of the cool room but I mean all of it this this super well I was a superhuman the super powered fungus just resisted every temperature available and um was in everything in in the kegs in the beer we actually had a tiny little barrel that had um uh quadruple for beers and we were very, very excited to try it because we thought, oh, great, this time we've not done anything, but at least the, the quadruple is is uh, ageing nicely. Mm. It was all ruined, the barrel we had to, to burn and throw away. Yeah, it was awful. Wow. That
0: I think COVID gave us a little insight into what will happen when society finally falls, I think. That, you know, how nature slowly reclaims spaces. Because there are a lot of people who, particularly with the multiple lockdowns that we had in Melbourne, who went back into their cellars or their cool rooms after being away for a few months and discovered things that, you know, had never been cultured up from the smallest petri dish, and now they'd taken over a whole room for themselves. That's right.
1: Uh, That's uh, pretty much actually what I was going to mention, Daniel, was the barrel. I still remember opening that barrel, and it was... uh, yeah, it looked like it was those cheese growing in this <laughs> it's not great it was just spreading everywhere there's some strain of fungus that it was uh yeah resisting everything i think the other things that i've seen it's nothing too extreme but i've seen it all i think i've seen dead rats in mock bags i've seen spider webs everywhere <laughs> i've seen you know chemical being spilled and on, on things where it should not be so yeah that's sort of part of the job and then you know teaching people not to do that <laughs>
0: Nothing radioactive is the the positive out of all of this. Uh So So far
1: so good, but yeah, you never know.
0: (laughs) We're going to open up the floor to some of the people in the Zoom room. It's one of the best things about our Thursday night sessions is that if you've bought the beers, you can come and join us live in the Zoom room and ask your questions. Uh, I feel like we have one of the most overqualified rooms in terms of the number of science degrees and PhDs and related things and someone who certainly has a few of those under his belt. James, let's ask your traditional questions, surprisingly unscientific questions in one sense, but some of your traditional cool room questions. Welcome back on board, brother. How are you?
4: Yeah, good. Thanks, Dave. And lovely to hear from the the chaps. It's uh, I've learnt tonnes already, talking science from the sociologists, but um wanted to... Um, I don't know if I said that right, but anyway... Um, what I wanted to ask you was if, you know, you're in a, a part of town where there's lots of breweries around you and I wondered if you'd thought about collaborating or if you've collaborated with other people around you and, and if I've just missed them.
2: Yeah. Um, I might cover some of the past ones and sure you can talk about some of the prospective ones potentially. So actually our very first beer was a, um, it was a call with Burnley Brewing, when we we used to brew at theirs, um, Michael was you know great in uh brewing together. He's a wealth of knowledge and and you know really helped us to get on our feet there. And so our first beer was uh, called Gravity, probably still my favorite beer um to date, and it was a ten percent whiskey aged imperial pastry stout. And the collab was actually a three way collab um, with Burnley, but also with the uh, whiskey makers. So it was with Mountain Distilling. They provided the whiskey, which kind of like a bit of a funny um, <laughs> story. Uh, wow, funny aftermath of it. We, they were good mates with Michael, so they provided that at a very keen price. Because it was a new whiskey and then they went off and put their whiskey onto a competition and then they won gold Uh, and it was priced as one of a very expensive whiskey. So we couldn't believe that it was actually used in, in beer, but it did make for a fantastic beer.
0: That's fantastic. I presume Isaac Newton was also a contributor, a collaborator on that one because, you know, until he came along, there was no gravity. I mean, God knows how the birds actually got back down to the ground after they'd taken off. So, Before James, I'm sure up. you've got more questions lined up for us there.
4: Yeah, I think Isaac was more into cider, though, David. But um, aside from that... Oh, um, I like that. And I wanted to ask you, like, as I do most brewers who come on here, we've got amazing hops coming out left, right, and centre, like New Zealand's an epicentre of, you know, amazing hops that seem to be coming up out of nowhere, particularly the, you know, Nelson region. And I wondered if you've got your eye on anything in particular and if there's anything that um, excites you or anything brewing, as it were.
1: I can take that one. Um Yeah, so with hops... There are a lot of exciting ones coming, uh, you know, every other month, every other uh, season, there's a new variety that's in the market and really unique as well in terms of the fla- flavors and, you know, the oils that contribute. And it's not just the hop strain itself, it's also just the, the, the format of hop products. So, you know, you have hop resin now, there's hop oils, there's free flow hops, so on and so forth. Uh, new Zealand is a really big contributor to that, I think, innovation and sort of pioneering that, uh, that industry as well. And uh, we do wish to use uh, a lot of them, to be honest, in our upcoming future beers. We only recently did uh, sort of a small collaboration, uh, Nipah, which used Superdelic hops. So that was sort of our attempt to use that new New Zealand hop and uh, pair it with the traditional hops that we usually use and see, you know, what sort of flavours we get. So. Uh, going in future, there's a pale ale that we are working on. It's an all Australian uh, pale ale, and we, we are using um, modern Australian hop products in that too. So there's hop resin again involved. So that should be a fun one once it's out. And uh, there's another beer which is Double Red IPA coming out even sooner, uh, which will also use um, you know uh, hop resin, but from United States this time. So just trying out different areas and seeing how we can include all these different influences from around the world in our, in our products and make something enjoyable. And James, it really wouldn't be one of your
0: traditional cool room question sessions without your final of your traditional three questions,
4: particularly (laughs) if we're we're
0: in geek mode, let's go full geek.
4: Okay. Thank you. You're very kind. So good friend of mine is Derek Lacey from uh, Bluestone yeast and, I wanted to ask because we had a bit of a yeast chat earlier and I wondered, you know, are you talking with Derek and do you have plans afoot with him for quirky yeast and whatnot?
1: Uh Dan, you might want to
2: take this one since you recently contacted him. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw that in the in the chat and it's uh we've had um we've always had wanted to do something with Derek. We know him since you know our time at, at Monash. Um he was you know, always there. Um, and he always took a liking to, to brew lab, the student brewing team, over um, time. Well, it's, it's obviously still going. But, um, and then, yeah, every time that we would uh, meet up or, you know, run into each other, we always um, say that we, we need to get something going. And there's been a few communication um, efforts there. Nothing has happened so far. We have made yeast, uh, sorry, made beer with uh, with their yeast naturally. Um, but, you know, our, our approach there is to do something a little bit uh, more exciting together. So that's still still in the works.
0: Awesome stuff. Look, guys, you've been so generous with your time tonight. I think even just there, Shiv, we've got an idea of the big range of fun beers that we can look forward to. Doug, I'm going to throw to you for a second here. How do people get hold of the beers? Where should they be going to find them in venues? But also in terms of online and so forth, the people who've listened in and enjoyed this, getting excited about the beers, how do they grab them?
3: Yeah, obviously you can jump onto the uh, zathologist.com. We've got beers online, we sell direct to public. Um, Wine Sellers Direct, if you're shopping online as well, they have uh, just about the whole range. So it's a good good place to go to and they uh, they're very good at their shipping and all the rest of it. As far as retail and bars, like I said before, we're all over Melbourne. Um, if it's a if it's a good venue, they're probably stocking our stuff. If they're not, tell them to contact me.
0: That's a good I like the way you phrased that, mate. There was some very neat stuff happening there. Um have Daniel, thank you so much for your time tonight. You've been really generous. We might sit around and have a couple more beers once we've clicked non-recording, but um we obviously love what you're doing. We love uh the concepts behind it. Thank you for being on the show tonight.
2: Thank you so much, Daniel. Uh, thank the opportunity. you so much.
0: Yeah, thank you. And um, Mr. Warren Wu, I sort of feel like I need to both welcome and say, you yeah, know, good it evening. Great, to you. Wasn't it? <laughs> Um, We're going to be getting together again next week with Tom from uh, Fixation, presuming that he answers one of my messages and delivers me beer in the next 16 hours or so. And um, we've got many more things lined up that are fun. Uh, Looking forward to all of that, my friend. Excellent to see you. Hope that parent-teacher night uh, went as well as it ever can in a primary school.
5: Yeah, it certainly did. It certainly did. Thanks, David. Night, guys.
4: Thanks, guys. Thank Thank you. you.